broad way I'm going to put this is technique being prioritized over wisdom. So on the one hand, there is a kind of universal quality to contributing to being an intellectual contributor where you're giving stuff that is there for the benefit of everybody. It's not the same or as measurable as growing pumpkins or crops. But on the other hand, it does represent actual serious intellectual labor. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host Nathan Rittenhouse. We're going to venture into some pretty odd territory. This is a kind of frontier, a technology frontier. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the strange ethical quandaries being posed by AI. But specifically, what we have in mind here, a number of well-known authors have recently petitioned some one of, I think, the three major AI companies. They don't want to litigate. Nobody wants to litigate. <laughs> Litigation is complicated and expensive and very time-consuming. But essentially, they are arguing you can't take our, you can't harvest our books. You can't harvest our intellectual property <laughs> for your content. That's an, uh, that would represent an unethical and unlawful use of our intellectual property. Some of the names on this list you'll recognize, Nathan, Nora Roberts, you'd mentioned yep, we haven't yep. heard her name in a while. I know you're a huge fan. Just kidding. <laughs> for for me, one of the one of the authors who's put his voice to this to this letter is Paul Tremblay. Paul Tremblay is a horror writer. He wrote Head Full of Ghosts. Oh Margaret his, Margaret Atwood's on there now. Margaret so Atwood. Handsmade tale fans. Yeah, that's but it's, right. it's a couple thousand. It's not. I mean, it's not just like it's not an insignificant. People. And these are and many of these are are best selling authors, people of of you know some influence and and real stature. But the problem is, again, the territory is so new, and laws, definitive laws, have yet to to be created here to deal with this kind of stuff. Well, so the question also, is, can can AI plagiarize? Can AI plagiarize? And so, I think well, so. so let's, well, hang on, we, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's back up and explain to everybody who hasn't read up on this what exactly is happening. Mm -hmm. So, better do so that. an artificial intelligence builds statistical probabilities of how words fit together based on the data that you feed it. So, if you have an, an AI system and you could take the 5,000 most uh, frequently read books in the United States and have it read all of them then that trains it in a certain way of, of thinking, I'm using thinking in quotes here, of how words fit together. So invariably, mm -hmm. yeah. um, and actually there have been comedians who have already sued over this. So this one from the authors is not a lawsuit, but there have been comedians who have sued who have said, look, now that you have you know, these algorithms being fed things that maybe come from websites that are pirating content that's copyrighted, like some of our, like AI is now making some of our jokes, for example, or an author could say now, now chat GBT, when you ask for a question on, um, the historical significance of rice in China, I'm just making this up. They're going to be quoting from and using resources of people who have done actual work on producing that, but chat GBT is going to be producing it as if it's its own. So the things that you would get kicked out of college for chat GPT does on mass and even if it isn't 
direct, and this is where it gets a little harder in its new ethical territory. Because what what happens if it's not directly quoting, but it's using an idea? And mm-hmm. and, and that and one how is, would you determine that? And how would you determine that? Because for <laughs> example, most um, this, this so so in, in some ways this isn't a new issue; it's a scale issue. So half of the stuff that Cameron and I say on this podcast is some sort of weird conglomeration of fragments of 40 books per episode or something. I don't know. Like there's all kinds of Mm -hmm. stuff floating around in the back of all of our minds where we've taken ideas and words and we don't remember them specifically, but we know that they form the bulk of the way that we think and our ideas on something. So there are, Mm -hmm. there are, let me, well, let me ask you, Cameron, I think this is true. I think there are books that deeply form the way that I think that I never remember reading. Oh yes. And nothing so, has confirmed. Yeah. For nothing confirms that for me quite like rereading old books and realizing. I was just getting ready to say oh, thing. I can go oh back dear. and re and reread a book that I took notes on in the margin. And I like, that is a totally yes. new idea to me, but apparently I commented on it at some point. I didn't. Well, and I think I didn't give credit. I thought this, I thought this was original to me, but, Lo and behold, I got it from this person right here. And, you know, the adage among preachers that you've been preparing your entire life for whatever given sermon that you preach, mm-hmm. part of that has to do with what you're talking about as well, Nathan, because, I mean, we're we're so thoroughly formed, in you know, by the experiences we've had and, indeed, all of the ideas we encountered. So there is a sense in which it's, I mean, is it possible to give full credit in all of the ways we've been formed? No, that that would be an impossible task. Does that take us off the hook, however, from try, trying to be responsible and judicious when in giving credit? No, I don't think it does either. There, there's a balance there. What's different here is when you're encountering this stuff in print. You know, speech is very ephemeral. And now, of course, you capture that in recordings these days, and that's introduced some questions. I mean, one one thing that's going to become abundantly clear if it hasn't already, we return to this again and again on Thinking Out Loud, is that all new forms of technology, no matter how convenient, bring about unforeseen ethical questions, including, of course, the amazing ways we have to preserve all this information, to record it, to send it, you know, all of that. It, it, it's going to introduce new challenges and new questions. But this certainly harvesting people's hard work. And of course, the other big elephant in the room here, Nathan, well, it's not really an elephant in the room, is that we're, we're at a juncture it's an in history where in writers... It's an elephant in the algorithm. The el- el- I, elephant I, in the algorithm, there you go. I would have coined a but, new I mean, phrase right there. This is a time where writers are vastly underpaid. I mean, mm. it is it is... Unless you are a heavy hitter, unless you're Nora Roberts or Stephen King, it's very difficult to make a living as a writer. Oh, and you, there's you know, something very you, strange. Do you know the actual number there? So, so of how much uh, th- so a the full-time average, writer brings in in a year? The, the median salary for a full-time writer is $22,000 a year. 22, yep, I did actually know that number. And I mean, as somebody who part of what I do is is write. And so I, I mean, and Nathan writes too. We both know firsthand how much work goes into that, how much careful research, how much intellectual labor. Well, so yeah, you, but see, you see, but here, pour yourself. Yeah, but here's the thing: yeah. is that is why a really like 
if somebody writes a good, a well-researched book, I always finish it with gratitude because I think, think of the phenomenal amount of years of life yeah. and research that went into producing this thing that I got to learn and benefit from somebody's extensive knowledge in this category in seven hours or something, however long it takes you to read a book. Correct. Um, yep. That, but that is exactly the same thing that ChatGPT is trying to do. It just does it in yes. 90 seconds instead of a lifetime. So that highlights, well, so that highlights, I think one of the bigger issues hovering over all of this has to do with a fundamental shift in priorities in modern thinkers. Well, modern people has to do with convenience. So most people now are almost, we're almost conditioned to not put the time in the seven hours, the 15 hours, whatever it takes to read the book. We're not really by and large, again, I'm just speaking statistically here. People are less and less willing to pay money for that book. What we will pay money for though, however, are tools that quickly disseminate what is in that book and make it really, I mean, give it to us really, really quickly so that preclude the actual long journey. It's the kind of, it's, I mean, we do the same thing with so many different facets. Think about Google Maps. So I'm going to tell you a funny little fact about Nathan Rittenhouse. If you're on the road with Nathan and traveling with him, you'll notice that he likes to engage in a little challenge. He doesn't want you to turn on Google Maps. He wants to rely on his own sense of direction and, and look for the place in the traditional ways. In other Channel words, your inner brain. homing pigeon. I your inner homing pigeon. But I just, and of course, I just want to turn on Google Maps. But of course, I have to admit, Google Maps has been very convenient, but it's been a tremendous impoverishment to us as well. Because how many of us now can't tell we we have a terrible sense of directions. We can't figure out how to get anywhere now. We're basically hampered and infantilized by this piece of technology. So that same sort of paradigm is operative in so many spheres. And people do this with books as well and learning. And I tell you what, wisdom doesn't work like that. There's no quick fix, easy, you know, Cliff Notes for Cliff's Notes version of wisdom. It's earned. And Careful thinking requires us to slow down and everybody wants to speed everything up, but we actually have to do the work and slow down if we want to think well. But when you look at what jobs actually get rewarded and compensated, you're going to see that what we value are speed, efficiency. We want all the technical know-how. What is not rewarded is careful learning, careful thinking, careful scholarship. These tend to be the lowest paid most undervalued okay. workers in our society. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, all right, hang on. So let me let me just be a total, let me say something that is just going to put you over the edge here. Um, does it matter? And this is the question that each of us is going to have to, to, to ask ourselves, so, or answer for ourselves. So even like um, 20, in 2012, so we're looking at 11 years ago, I had a class with a professor at a notable institution who says you should never memorize something that you can Google the answer to. Because that's, it's a waste of brain space to try to memorize things because you will always have access to Google. Um, so, so one of the things like if you What'd navigate, you that? <laughs> well, okay, but here's the, let me set up the parallel first. So the parallel to that is like, if you navigate, um, you're going to miss your, like without your phone, or GPS, you're going to miss a turn sometimes. You're going to have to stop and stick your head out the window and holler at somebody and say, hey, how do you find the corner of whatever? And I'm looking for this shop. Um, 
it'll it will so that style of navigation takes longer to get there the first time sometimes but then you're much faster at it by yourself without the system the second time so so what you learn in that initial interaction saves you time in all your other interactions in that area so if you navigate to one spot in an urban area on your own you have a better understanding of how the whole area works and so what you're doing is you're going slower in order to understand more about how that little microcosm and that little mm -hmm. system and road system works however if you always have access to the to the satellite do you need to learn that if you if you always have access to a system that can quickly summarize massive amounts of information for you do you need to learn how to do that for yourself and that like th i think you would have an immediate answer to that but i'm not sure that everybody would immediately answer that in the same way so do we just say okay this is helpful um but now we're in a new phase where i don't need to know how to learn certain things does does, does that rant even make does that question even make any sense you know what it puts me in mind of? It puts me in mind of an old Sherlock Holmes story where somebody relays a fact, a cosmic fact, to Detective Sherlock Holmes about the universe. And he says, essentially, I will quickly jettison this from my brain now. I have only so much space in, in, you know, in, in my mind, and I want to devote it exclusively to detective work so that I can be as sharp and well-honed on my set of skills as I can. So on the one hand, I want to express some sympathy with your professor and with the notion that we have finite capacities as human beings. And so what we devote our attention to matters a great deal. And what we memorize, I think, is important. The problem is I think so many of us memorize reams and reams of trivialities while failing to maybe memorize some of the things that are a little <laughs> bit more important. So my, my example there would be how many, and again, bear in mind, I, Cameron, I, this is, I, love, I love music, I love movies, but how many of us, we have so much dialogue for movies in our heads. We have so many pop songs in our heads. Probably don't have a sonnet by Shakespeare memorized or <laughs> you know, something of maybe a little bit more significance. Well, see, or but scripture, that, but, that's, how about, but that's how about some scripture? But, but so he, so my point here though, Nathan is, is all of that is yes, we have project Gutenberg and, you know, Bible hub and all of that. It's instant, it's instantaneously accessible at the, you know, movement of our thumbs. Does that, does that mean that we should free up headspace and not memorize it? Well, no, see, that's where I think we're making a mistake. We're starting to think of our we have limited finite capacities, but our brains are not like computers. And when you memorize something, you internalize it and it becomes a part of you in a much deeper, more intimate way, which is why, by the way, watching movies and listening to music is not a neutral pastime. It, it forms you. So mm -hmm. if you're intentionally taking in things that have, uh, have a timeless quality to them, are recognized for their beauty and their excellence then you are forming yourself in a way that is, it, it's enhancing you. It's expanding your horizons and it's strengthening your mental muscles and maybe even adding to your lifespan. So I think there are some very salutary 
effects from doing that kind of thing. And I wouldn't see it as a waste of effort just because you have access to it on Google. In fact, if you have instant access to something and you rely only on that, you're letting certain mental muscles atrophy, as we've seen with the Google Maps example. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. So yes, I'm I'm with you, except I'm asking the question, has that ship already sailed? So but look at it this no, way. I don't um, think so. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's optimistic. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So for but one of the things like so one of our board members, our good old buddy Ben, um, he was he was saying a very interesting thing. He said it's very likely that there's a future in which you don't have computer programmers anymore. You have people who are skilled in asking AI the right questions to generate the program. So like mm -hmm. th there there is a there's a sense there in which whatever comes next humans will always be involved in it because it will have to guide and direct the content to some extent however i guess what seems to me to be lost is that ai is is looking like it's producing new ideas but it's just rearranging already had ideas it's rearranging ideas that are the hard work and labor of of human beings. But but isn't that why you write a book but, and put yeah, it in has, the public library? Is to influence the culture the 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 subconscious mm -hmm. cultural ethos of your neighborhood. Um so there's there's a sense in which I'm I'm free to go to my public library and read five thousand books. But I don't sure and I'm free to then use that information if I'm directly quoting I Research, you know, footnote yep. that correctly, but it, it shapes and forms who I am and then the type of person that I become in the community that I live in, the way that I speak on things like this. How is the AI not just doing that faster? Well, in one sense, it is just doing that faster, but I think the objection comes in when if the AI is being used to create other artifacts or other, you know, products, whether shows, scripts, books well, okay but don't you get into this with music like how do you say when a band copied something or was influenced by something yeah and that's a that's a thorny question to this day i mean i don't know if you paid any attention to the ed sheeran lawsuit which was i mean he's had a few lawsuits against him for and this this one this latest one which he officially won in a court of law was with marvin gay's estate and so you know when it comes to pop music, though, there it's there. It, in some ways, there's there are a limited number of of cards in the deck, sonically speaking. And yeah, you're gonna have music that sounds like you're gonna have a song that sounds like another song. There is, and there's a fine line between influence and plagiarism. Or in the movies, you look at somebody like a director like Quentin Tarantino, one of our most celebrated directors right now. He makes a film like Kill Bill, which you know, some would say, well, you know, it's got, it's, it takes huge influences from, you know, some of the Kung Fu movies of Asia and others might say, yeah, no, it steals from, <laughs> from those <laughs> movies. It's basically like he was one of the premier postmodern kind of directors when Pulp Fiction came out because what he, what he was doing, remember the form of art that was very, that this is hearkening back to conversations of 20, 30 years ago, but the, the, the art form that was most associated for a while with postmodernism was the collage. And yeah, Tarantino's yeah, but, so, films were like collages of other people's work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but so I, 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 I'm, I'm fully with you, except you and I are old souls who tend to like the yeah. product of human 
creativity, ingenuity, like, and wisdom. Mm-hmm. But that I'm, I'm, I'm on the border of saying here is, is abnormal. Um, so, so why, why is it like, what, what would be the things that would, that would give people pause and not just gobbling well, up everything that's yeah, pitched I think, through it through their through the system because it's easier. Yeah. Let me see if I can add some clarity here real quickly. So on the one hand, in very broad terms, Nathan, you have the constellation of human thought down the ages. A huge wealth of material from which we all benefit, we all draw from it, we use it, we rearrange it, not at the accelerated rate of AI, but we do. And we don't, in fact, most of the time, we probably don't give credit because we're not even aware of how we've been shaped by it. It's part of our educational system. It's part of the people who have poured into us. That's just the nature of the constellation of human thought, I called it, or just communication in general. There is a sort of inherently, I don't know how else to say this, democratic ethos to it in the sense that we all it's we're all shaped by other people. It's maybe a better word is the relational, the inescapably relational human nature of human life. It's a human enterprise. So there is that. But on the other hand, now we have a dynamic with with AI where this this is happening at a greatly accelerated rate, and you have a class of workers who are suffering because of it, who are losing losing income and the ability to make a living. And this is reflected not just among writers, it's also reflected among educators. I I think in some ways, another, I mean, I don't think the way college professors and teachers are treated is unrelated to this kind of, again, it's the paradigm of valuing speed, efficiency, and control over human ways of doing things. Because... Yeah, but, okay. AI is a, is all a, AI is all about speed again, and it's all about magnifying and amplifying what we can do and making us do it better, more quickly, and more powerfully. And I think one of the central challenges this is this is I didn't say this. This was oh, I came across this from a writer on Twitter, and I can't think of her name right now. But just know this is not my thought, so I want to give her credit, anonymous her. But she basically said, I think the central challenge of our day is to be fully human. Because everything, I mean, so much is trying to take us to a post-human sort of, you know, expansion. And we, the the humane humanitarian impulse to stick with, to use, I think AI is a tool. So it, it, it can be used as, and it can and should be used as a tool. We use it at thinking out loud to a very limited degree, but we do. But to see it. Uh, but when you're you're seeing whole groups of people suffering because their kind of careful intellectual labor isn't valued in a world where speed and efficiency and control are the top priorities, there I think we have reason for concern. Yeah. Okay. Two two things real quick. If you're wondering about how Thinking Out Loud uses AI, so we have AI generated transcripts of these podcasts that then appear as blogs, and we do have the additional step of our friend Mark. Shout out. Thanks, Mark who goes through and humanizes them because the AI can get it wrong or yeah. So we, we have to humanize doesn't make those careful, way. subtle distinctions because AI doesn't actually think that's why you have to say thinking yeah. in quotes. <laughs> so the thing that's like drives Mark crazy is like, we say stuff that's in a sarcastic tone to each other that AI doesn't recognize as sarcasm or 
we don't speak in complete sentences or we interrupt each other in a way that as you're listening to a conversation is totally different than what you would, you know, see if you're reading it. So anyway, yeah, that's saves a ton of time, but we still have to humanize it on the back end. Um, I guess the reason for that some of this is challenging. For, so what's the solution to this? Like, is it, is it just coming down to say, okay, the people who are feeding the, the algorithms need to be careful that they're using properly sourced material. Uh, that's not immediately clear to me that that solves the problem. The bigger issue is, mm. is that the, the, the value of human wisdom has, has not necessarily been an economic driving force in any culture. So artistic development, creativity, wisdom, words, um, education, those have all, well, the, the great ones of the past were all patronized by somebody who had a bunch of money from something else. So there wasn't a thing as a professional writer um, however many years ago. Like people did it because it, so so we we always have the idea that people who can consolidate ideas and present things um, or produce art that's always been appreciated but not always valued financially. So this just seems to me like another iteration of a historic sense in which there's a, a human community part of like, you need people in your community who are doing this type of work, but they probably won't be able to do that level of that type of work and plant enough pumpkins to feed everybody at the same time. So at some point somebody says, I'm going to grow extra pumpkins and you write the poetry, right? Um, well, yeah. So, just so there's always been that division of, so like as somebody who produces content, I so want there I think to be, fair representation of that on the other hand we don't produce like there's somebody who's listened to enough episodes of thinking out loud that it's slightly changed the way that they're thinking and we don't expect there to be any compensation to us for the type of person or maybe we don't want the responsibility but um so there's there's a way in which some intellectual property is built to be gifted to humanity and whether or not this is doing that or if this is a well, shortcut I hear you. Question. Just some, just some modest pushback on that, though, Nathan. Because well, in I'm times hoping you past, will. I, was, I, I want myself to be wrong here. Well, from an economic standpoint, in in times not in the not too distant past, for instance, and a lot of people pointed this out, journalism was a viable way to make a living. Now, most professors, for instance, will tell you that you shouldn't, if you're studying journalism, you shouldn't expect to be able to make a living at journalism. It it's maybe at best a side hustle. So there's one measurable that, I mean, that you could, at one point you could earn an actual, you know, livable salary as a journalist. And there are some who still do to this day, but they're, you know, they're kind of maybe rare superstars or people who work for major media. In the past, teachers, I mean, this is a notable one. This is measurable too. And you're on intimate terms with this, Nathan. And as am I, we both have long line of educators in our families. Teachers, have consistently endured cutbacks after cut, cutback after cutback to whether it's health benefits being slashed, whether it's salary reduction. It used to be that becoming a school teacher was a pretty sweet gig and a very responsible one. And now many of those benefits have dwindled. Same with college professors. So this is part of the, the trend that I'm pointing to where technique is being prioritized over in the broad way I'm going to put this is technique being prioritized over wisdom. 
So on the one hand, there is a kind of universal quality to contributing to being an intellectual contributor where you're you are giving stuff that is there for the benefit of everybody. It's not the same or as measurable as growing pumpkins or crops. But on the other hand, it does represent actual serious intellectual labor and the cultivation of, of real people. And, and actually, you said you don't want to be held too responsible. But I mean, if we turn to scripture, of course, the words here, and this is not intended specifically for school teachers and professors, but yet let not many of you become teachers. And it's talking about that, that real serious and awesome responsibility that comes along with forming minds. So I do think that it, there's a case to be made that this is work that is serious work that is every bit as important as producing crops or being in manufacturing, any of these things. It's not as, it's not measurable in the same materialistic terms. But again, we live in a very materialistic age. And I don't mean, see, when I say something like that, I think the risk is we hear that and we think, well, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an atheist and I, I don't, you know, I don't know many people who are atheists, and I'm, but I'm talking about a default mental setting where it's not so much that we, you know, we would all identify as atheists. In fact, when you look at the actual numbers, not, not that many people self-identify as skeptics and atheists. I mean, that number mm -hmm. might be going up, but globally speaking, it's an insignificant number. It's small. But when it comes, to, but if you think along the lines of, yeah, you know, I, I think, I think prayer and wisdom and all that stuff's really good. But in the end, we need, when we need to get stuff done, we're going to need money. We're going to need actual legislation. And we need, you know, we, we need to make stuff happen. We need money. We need politics. We need power. So if that's your default assumption, then your default assumption really is running more along the lines of materialism and humanism. That's the insidious. That's what's, that's what Craig M. Gay calls practical atheism, where God sits in the margins when the real important stuff has to happen of your mind. And you basically think, well, you know, he's, his his actual authority and rulership and kingship and presence are of practical insignificance when I'm facing an actual crisis. There, we just we need we need doctors, we need lawyers, we need scientists, we need politicians, and that's how you actually make stuff happen. I know I've said a lot. We're we're veering all yeah, over the no. map here, so, so the apologies to our listeners. Well, for it's 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 totally a, like we're it's like it's like walking. The whole thing with AI is like walking across a field and coming to the wood line and trying to figure out where the path is. Like, sometimes you have mm. to walk back and forth along the edge of the woods to find the blaze or the trail to say, where does the path continue from here? And I think we're just as humans at that spot of like crossing an opening, we're coming to a new forest, and we're trying to figure out what is the appropriate path of entry into the future of this. Um, mm. Yeah, so for me, that works as an analogy. But the, I guess... If I had to like try to consolidate this into something moderately helpful, is to to recognize that all of our inputs do impact our output. So who who we become and what we say and the way that we think is directly dependent and deeply dependent on what we spend time listening to. Um, Jesus talks a whole lot about this kind of thing, um, so that mm. shouldn't be surprising to us. Um, good company corrupts bad character. Paul writes that too in Corinthians. Um, the 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 idea though becomes i think what is the purpose so so the question that i want to ask myself is what is the purpose of the things that i'm learning and if it's to know just neat things ai will help me there but 
and, and we've talked about this before when we talked about education, where I talk about like an education lets you know what the questions are. A good education lets you know what the questions are and gives you systems for putting answers together. But a great education lets you know what the questions are, shows you systems for putting those answers together, but it's also taught to you by somebody whose life emulates one of those answers. And this goes all the way back to Socrates, right? Of Or Jesus, let's use Jesus, that the, the student becomes like the teacher, right? And so the thing that is helpful about that statement from Jesus that's helpful for our lives as it relates to this is that if the student becomes like its teacher, what is your teacher like? That's a good question just to sit and wrestle with. What is your, who is teaching you right now in life? What are they like? And are they the types of people and or things that you want to become? And so I think if your teacher is an algorithm and the student becomes like its teacher, I don't even know what that means. Um, just think on that. I want to think on that. I'm, I'm not saying like I have that as a slam dunk thing, but I think that we're living at a time in which there's so much information available to us that we have to be super selective about how we decide what information we want to take in. And one of the ways that we start doing that is looking at the life of the person who's espousing an idea and saying, is that a worthwhile pursuit of my life in the way that I want to grow? And then, you know, doubly so within Christian discipleship um, and that whole idea of becoming Christ-like and being conformed to the image of the son. Um, I was, I was thinking about that with, um, I forget what game, something somebody was doing. I was just thinking like, are there any fruits of the spirit that are produced in me by participating in this activity? Uh, hmm. You know, like, and maybe that sounds a little harsh to say it that way. Cause I think there are times for genuine joy, which is part of it, but then there's just, you know, entertainment and fun. I'm not sure how that fits in there, but, but like to be, so if it's going, if the future of artificial intelligence is for us to be asking the right questions about how to use the resource, one of the fundamental questions that we have to be asking is what is it that we're becoming like if the student becomes like its teacher? Where are we learning and where are we going? Um, and that for me is the best I can do right now at setting up a parameter for myself of how far and to what extent do I want to use what technologies. So anyway, sit with that one for a little bit. I think we've done a masterful job at running around for half an hour, and I'm not sure that we found that path forward into the woods for you yet on this one of whether or not an algorithm can plagiarize. But I think we can flip that back around and use it within our own lives to ask some good questions that help us um, narrow our focus to the truly beautiful things in this world. Um, and in my mind, all of those uh, circle around humans that the good Lord has created. So onward we go from here. We hope this has been helpful to you. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www toltogether.com that's toltogether.com and please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends it really does help <laughs>